Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Rebecca Lynn Howard is a country music artist, or was, and wrote a song about cheating. But there's a famous line in there. I guess the guy came back and wanted to just let things go away and somehow be reconciled to each other. And she has this line that she says, forgive, that's a mighty big word for such a small man. And I'm not sure I can. We come to one of the hardest practices of following Jesus this morning when we talk about the practice of forgiveness. Ours is not a culture that is good at asking for forgiveness, certainly not at granting forgiveness. I hear far more talk about forgiving yourself than I do about forgiving someone else who has sinned against you and has deeply hurt you. I think on the rare occasion that I hear the language of some kind of apology, it sounds a little bit like, I'm sorry that you were hurt by that. And then it's like, well, it's no big deal. It's fine. Which is not the language of an actual confession or repentance. It's not the language of actually forgiving someone. But that's the way we talk when we do talk about it. And this is such a central component to the Christian life that instead of just like filing it away as like something that Christians do or are called to do, we're actually saying it's one of the 10 core practices that Jesus taught. And he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my apprentice, and you want your life to look like mine, forgiveness is going to be at the core of your habitual daily practice. So we're talking about forgiveness, and there's a mandate, a meaning, a model, uh, an impediment, and a motivation. And if you would please spell impediment with an M, it'll all work, Okay. So mandate, meaning, model, impediment, and motivation. So I'm starting with mandate because what I want you to see from this text and other texts is that forgiveness is not something that's optional 
for those who would say that I follow Jesus. Forgiveness is not something that, that as you're climbing the ladder or however you view spirituality as a progress on the path of following Jesus, it's not like you get to a certain point and you're mature enough to start actually forgiving. This is a basic thing that Jesus starts with and just says, like, if anyone would follow me, you're a person who practices forgiveness. Um, we did not read these verses, but if you skim back just a few verses before where we started this morning to like verse 15. And I think it's erroneously called like this passage on church discipline because really it's somewhat of the opposite. It's somewhat of like, what does any Christian do when any other Christian sins against you? And God gives this pattern. Jesus gives this pattern of you just go to that person directly. You don't broadcast it through some kind of gossip to get other people on your side feeling really sorry for you and blow things out of proportion. You just go to that person. And if that doesn't work, then you take a few witnesses with you and you go back to that person and you, you plead with them and you implore them to make the relationship right. And only then, if the person continues in sin and continues in patterns of unrepentance, does it ever come in any formal sense, I guess, before the church. What I hear Jesus saying in the early verses of Matthew 18 is at every step of the way when you are sinned against, your goal is reconciliation. You always go to people and say, my, my first and greatest instinct is not just to be mad or to be hurt, but is to go and try to make things right. And I think this is really incredible. If you unpack all the teachings of Jesus, get this. He says, whether you're the offender or the offended, whether you're the one that sinned against someone else or you're the one that has been sinned against, it's always your move to go to the other person, the other party, and seek a process of forgiveness. Disciples are hearing Jesus teach this. That's what came right before this. And they're like, wow, this sounds really hard. And, and, G and Peter blurts out, and this is where we started, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And this is interesting because the, the rabbinic teaching of that day was three times. And I think Peter is thinking, like, I'm being really magnanimous because I'm doing that times two plus one. And, and I think, like, let's give Peter credit. I think he's starting to hear somewhat of the grace of Jesus and understanding this is about the heart. This isn't really about a number. So I'm going to multiply this grace to people that have hurt me. He's getting something. But let's see how Jesus responds here. Because Jesus' response, catch this, is not prescribing a specific limit, like seven but is really going to the heart of what forgiveness is. And he says, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. So a few interesting things here. First of all, just note again that Jesus asserts that his disciples will be radically forgiving people. Uh, okay, Peter, how often should one of my disciples forgive? Well, 77 times. It's a mandate. You're going to do it over and over and over and over again. It's not optional. You're just, Christians are forgiving people. Elsewhere, Mark 11, Jesus said, whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Well, let's come back to this. What, what, what's going on with this number 77 then if he's not prescribing a limit? And I think there's a couple of interesting things there. One, I think Jesus deliberately means to parallel something in the fourth chapter of the Bible. So there's this man named Lamech and he says this, he says, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. 
listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And I don't think his point is, I will take revenge 77 times, but not 78. And I don't think his point was, my revenge is 11 times stronger than Cain's. I think his point is, I want everyone to fear me because I will always, always, always take revenge. And so he uses this parabolic number, 77. I'll always take revenge. And in parallel and in contrast, Jesus is saying, as Lamech's revenge is limitless, so the forgiveness of my followers is limitless. Because I think if you were starting to count, I mean, if you're forgiving someone for the same thing and they're coming back to you and being like, I did it again, you might be like, okay, this is the third time or this is the 10th time. But by the time you're like in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you're either going to be a forgiving person at that point or you're not. You're not really counting at that point. You're just a forgiving person. That's what Jesus is counting on here. He's just saying you always forgive. This is in line with, with what the New Testament teaches the churches. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 12, and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So that's mandate. Does that make sense? Just, it's not, it's not optional. It's not for special people. It's, it's what Christians do. But that brings us to the meaning, because I think it's probably a good time to pause and say, so what does it really mean to forgive someone or to be forgiven? The New Testament uses two basic terms for forgive and forgiveness. I'll give you both. The first word, the root word, is afiemi. Afiemi means to let go of, to send away, to release. Okay, so you ever been driving around town, as I have, and you see that giant cluster of helium balloons that's just like making its way skyward. And I always try to like reverse engineer that and just picture like the little child on the playground that is bawling their eyes out because, because they let it go. They released it. And one cannot chase after the balloons that have been released. It's gone. So also, if you release the debt of another person, you can't go back later and say, well, now, now I demand that you pay it because you, you haven't proven to be serious enough in your repentance or whatever it is. I, I, I want that back again. It's been, it's been released. That's the first word, afiemi. The second word, karitsamai, means to freely and graciously pardon or pay the debt of another or to show favor. It's based on the Greek root word charis, which is the word grace. So it's like a gracious pardon or payment on behalf of another person. Some of you have probably heard me illustrate this before, but out of college, I got to work with a college ministry at my church, be a college pastor for a period of time. And one of the really fun things about being like a college sponsor or college pastor is like Lake Day. 
And Lake Day was this wealthy man in the church that had jet skis and a boat. And he's like, all the kids come out for your day and we'll grill hot dogs and burgers and just have a great time water skiing and all that. And we got to go early and ride the jet skis. And this was my first time riding jet skis. But I learned very quickly, like if you turn sharply at a very high rate of speed, it throws this big wall of water. Well, one of the other sponsors was there. And he started doing this right next to me and throwing a wall of water on me. It's freezing cold first thing in the morning. I was like, well, that looks like fun. I'll do the same to you. And so we're out there in the middle of the lake, kind of running at each other. In the last second, we would just kind of carve away from each other and just soak each other. And we're doing this and doing this and doing this. And it's just, just the, the greatest fun of your life. Until one of those times, we didn't carve soon enough. And the holes of the two jet skis went smack. And we're like, oh, snap. Uh, so we kind of go limping back to the dock in these jet skis that now have big scrapes in the fiberglass. And I say, hey, Mr. Jackson, I'm really sorry. I was being stupid, and this is what I did. And I'll never forget. He just says, hey, don't worry about it, guys. I forgive you. Thanks for letting me know. I'll pay it. I got plenty to cover this. Let me take care of it. You guys go have fun. That's this second word, karitsamai, because what I want you to notice in that illustration is there was a wrong done, and there was a damage. There was a harm. And when someone comes and says, let me karitsamai you, let me forgive you, the harm doesn't just poof, vanish. It is Mr. Jackson saying, it's your mistake, but let me cover it. Let me pay for it. The, the hurt was done by you to me, but let me take care of it. That's an illustration of the nature of forgiveness, that forgiveness is always grace. It's always mercy. It's always undeserved kindness because by definition, you can't go back and say, well, let me, let me pay for it. Let me, let me work it off. And you're like, no, in a sense, I'm saying you don't have to work it off to make this thing right. And I'm not saying that restitution is never right, because often it is right, that you as the offender would still say, thank you for your forgiveness, and I'm working on a restitution for the thing I broke or stole or whatever. But we're just talking about what it means. And it's just the grace of saying, I release, I let go of resentment and contempt. I let go of any harmful motive towards you. So that's hard to do. And yet we're supposed to do it. Why? Why are we supposed to forgive? And, and right off the top, I've, I've already given you a why, which is King Jesus says so. But let's go to point three, the model, because I want you to remember that in the rabbinic model of discipleship, and that's why I keep using the word disciple, I keep using the word apprentice or apprentices, um, we are not merely intellectual students of Jesus who sit in his classroom, learn academic stuff, and then go do whatever. We're, the rabbinic model of discipleship is you watch my life every bit as much, if not more than listening to my words. So both my words and my life are saying something to you and you're supposed to copy my life. You're supposed to imitate my actions. If you see me doing something, you do it. So this is the model. And I want to just highlight two specific instances from the life of Jesus. First of all, in John 13, where I'll say Jesus demonstrated the pattern of forgiveness in John 13. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. I said I would come back to it. So John 13 Jesus and his disciples have come together for this highest and greatest Jewish feast called Passover, which is remembering, but also celebrating and commemorating God delivered our ancestors from slavery in Egypt. 
Okay, so there's bread and wine and bitter herbs and there's lamb and they're feasting together and they're saying thank you and all these symbols are of like the lamb who shed its blood so that we're delivered out and then God fed us in the wilderness with manna and the blood was shed and they're just like, what a great celebration of this deliverance. But this particular Passover, you may know, is often referred to as the Last Supper because within hours, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own 12 disciples and brutally beaten and executed. In the middle of dinner, John, who's writing this story, says Jesus got up from reclining at the table and he goes over and he fills a basin of water and gets a towel and he begins working his way around the table, washing his disciples' feet with his bare hands, in part because no one else was willing to do that. And a few weeks ago, we talked about why, because the, the, the washing of the feet was the, that was the responsibility of either the host or is the responsibility of the person who is the lowest, because you're touching dirty feet that are walking around on dusty roads in sandals or barefoot, and, and it's a gross thing. So no one else is willing to do it because the disciples are always posturing and arguing like, well, I, I may not be number one, but I know I'm not number 12. You know, maybe Thaddeus is 12 or Judas is 12 or Bartholomew, but it's not me. Well, Jesus says it's me. I want you to think about that for a moment that, that again, hours before betrayal and denial, Jesus is washing the feet of Peter. Jesus is washing the feet of Judas along with the other 10. When Jesus finished, John 13, 12 says this. Jesus resumes his place at the table and he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay, so, so be honest. How many of you washed feet today? Somebody else's? Or this week? This month? 2023? Okay, y'all are a bunch of rebels. He said, as I have done for you, you do to each other. What have we done with this in the Christian church? And I think it's fine, okay, I'll, to let you off. We've understood there is a cultural expression of something happening here. And what we're looking for is, are we preserving the cultural expression? Because right now, we, we all go around in shoes for the most part. We have many pairs of shoes, many of you, and socks and all that. And we change and we can bathe all the time. So we understand it'd be very weird and you would feel something very different if you came to eat at my house and I took off your shoes at the front door, got a basin of water and started poking my fingers between your toes. It would, it would mean something different, okay? In Jesus' day, it basically meant two things. And this is why I shared it a number of weeks ago when we were looking at the practice of service. Because first, it means like I am a humble servant to you. I don't view myself as above you. I view myself as just your humble servant. And whoever that is in Christian community, it's, there, there's no posturing that goes on in the family of Jesus of like, well, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, I'm a this, or I run this ministry. It's just, we humbly serve one another because that's what Jesus did. But there's this important second thing, that in that culture, Washing someone's feet was a sign of forgiveness and acceptance. And you think about this in the modern context. It is very hard to invite someone over to your home and sit down and fellowship around the table if you're at odds with each other. And so very plainly, this Jewish custom was, I want to serve you. 
I want to host you. I want to show hospitality to you. But if I'm washing your feet, I'm saying, I want table fellowship with you. And if there's something between us, then symbolically, I am washing that away. I am cleansing you and letting you know you are now welcome and we are now reconciled. And let's sit at the table. Let's recline at the table and let's share bread. And what's important to see then is when Jesus says, imitate me. As I have cleansed and forgiven you, your Lord and teacher, so if you're my apprentices, you welcome and love and accept and cleanse and forgive one another. Jesus demonstrated the pattern of forgiveness. Now fast forward to a second story a few hours after that last meal, and I know we're jumping into this, um, and it's hard to just like shift gears, but I want to just cast your mind's gaze for a moment on the horrors of crucifixion. So Jesus has now been betrayed. He's been taken into custody by the Roman army. He's been put through a series of fake trials in front of the religious leaders who find him guilty of blaspheming God because he said he's the son of God, which he in fact is, which he will prove to them very shortly. But he's accused, but the Jews have no authority to crucify a man, so they hand him back over to the Roman authorities, basically accuse him of sedition. The Romans don't want sedition, so Pilate's like, fine, I'll release to you this criminal, Barabbas, or I'll release to you Jesus. They say, give us the criminal. So Jesus is stripped and he's beaten. And if you know anything about those beatings, like he was beaten with rods, one gospel says, but another gospel says with a whip, which was a cat of nine tails, braided leather strands with shards of bone and glass in them. And just picture 39 lashes with that wrapped around your body and ripped off. And uh, he is just open and bleeding from neck to knees and crown of thorns and the, the crucifixion itself of like the nails through the wrists and through the feet to hold you in place. But it's, it's this suffocating shame of being naked and exposed and all your peers passing by and just uh, hurling insults at Jesus, insult after insult. So this is Jesus. And Luke 23, 34 says, right in the middle of all of this, after hours and hours and hours of this kind of abuse, um, physical abuse, mental, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, social abuse, all of that's going on. And Luke 23, 34 says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's the afiyame word. Father, let go, release this thing don't hold this sin against them, but let it go. And the, and the reasonable question is how? How could God just forgive? I mean, if you read the story, is there evidence of any of those people, the religious leader or a kind of secular superpower leader, coming back to Jesus and saying, oh no, I got it wrong. I participated in something really, really bad. Jesus, please, please forgive me. And he's like, okay, Father, forgive you because you do know what you're doing. Or you do recognize that. No, he says, none of these people asked for forgiveness. None of these people even recognized that what they were doing was in that moment very, very wrong. By the way, let that be a lesson to you. Because if you refuse to forgive people until they come and ask you for forgiveness, I was thinking about this this week. I can think of three people in my life in the last year who have come. And I don't mean like, oh, sorry that that happened. But I mean, have come and said, I did this thing that was wrong. It hurt you. 
will you please forgive me? Three people out of hundreds and hundreds of people that I interact with. If you're sitting there waiting for other people to, 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 to acknowledge the depth of what they did to hurt you, you're not going to be a forgiving person. You're going to be a bitter and calloused and resentful and angry person, which I'll come back to in a few moments. But here's the thing. Jesus can say, Father, forgive them because of literally what he's doing right then. He's saying, Father, release their debt because you've put their debt on me. Don't hold their sin against them because the sin has been laid on my account. And if you're ever wondering, like, what is at the core of what Christians believe? Well, what we believe is that Jesus was the son of God. He came to this earth to be our sin bearer. That he's literally like, take, take the sin, take the stain, take the debt, put it all on me, Father, and I will die the death that they deserve to die so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be free and released and pardoned and whole and reconciled to the Father and to this Christian family. So Jesus is up there and he can pray, Father, forgive them, because he's literally in the moment giving his life in exchange for theirs, which again, just demonstrates the, the power and the nature of forgiveness, the grace of forgiveness. And I'm talking about the model and just saying, let, let's read these stories of Jesus over and over again. And let's see not only what he said with his words, but what he did with his actions to demonstrate true, deep, rich, forever forgiveness. Now, the impediment spelled with an M. M-P-E-D-I-M-E-N-T. Why don't we forgive like this? There's a bunch of reasons, spiritually and I would say psychologically as a counselor, I could tell you a bunch of reasons. I'm going to just give you two. One is we instinctively hate unfairness. We don't forgive because we hate unfairness. And, and parents, you've all heard this. If you have more than one child or if your one child had a friend over and you just send them in another room to, to play a game or to build something together or to do whatever, and you parents never taught your kids this, but you will hear these words from the other room, that's not fair. They have an innate understanding of what's fair and what's not fair. And I think one of the most basic reasons why we struggle forgiving people is we just say, it's, it's not fair. Why, why should I have to bear the consequences, even in part, of someone else's sin? And why should they have to pay for mine? Okay, you've, you've all been deeply hurt by someone, I assume. And I'm not meaning to dredge up memories, except maybe you need to, to realize I haven't forgiven someone. But I mean, like people have lied about you and lied to you. They've slandered you, gossiped about you, maybe stolen something from you, taken something from you that they did not or cannot give back. Um, you've had people that deliberately embarrassed or humiliated you, ridiculed you about something, made you feel very small. Um, you've had people harm you. I mean, harm you physically, some of you. Harm you emotionally, harm you psychologically, harm you relationally. Maybe someone cheated on you, betrayed you, just completely turned their back on you and abandoned you. And those are very real things. Those are very hurtful things. And my guess is 
if percentages are playing as they normally do, that person that you're thinking of right now has not asked for your forgiveness. They have not come back and said, I lied, I cheated, I quit on you. And you could be saying, so they hurt me deeply and I still bear maybe physical scars, at least emotional scars, mental scars, maybe spiritual scars. And you would say, it's not fair that I would just forgive them. I didn't do those terrible things to them. They did those terrible things to me. It's unfair. I don't want to forgive. It's unfair. I think on the flip side of that, another reason I'll give you that, that we struggle is because while we have an intuitive understanding of fairness and we hate unfairness, there is something that we love when someone hurts us, and that is revenge. And some of you, you know, the, the revenge may not be this really aggressive, you hit me, I hit you, you yell at me, I yell at you. Some of you, like, you're, you're very cultured and manicured in the way that you just distance yourself. You don't blow up, you clam up, but you know I'm punishing this person for what he or she did to me. You know, we spiritualize it. We use words like accountability and responsibility and justice. Like she needs to take accountability for her thing, and she does, and, and, and let the church work with you on that. But part of, part of you in the earlier part of Matthew 18, going to someone and just saying, you really hurt me, is the pressing of accountability and responsibility for what they did without you having to continue to carry a spirit of unforgiveness, of bitterness, of resentment. And I want to say, if, if that's you, I only listed examples that I've been on the receiving end of, and I know it's excruciating. And I would say, and, and the people that have harmed me worst in life, none of them have apologized or said, would you please forgive me? And sometimes it feels great, doesn't it? Just to sit and fume and be angry. It feels good feels good for a while. I'm like, no, I'm not sorry that I'm mad at you. It's unfair. You hurt me. Like, I'm just angry. Forgiveness is very different than let's just agree to disagree about what happened or let's pretend like nothing happened. And I know we have relationships like that. I'm guessing you do too, that some people that have hurt you deeply, they, they just want to carry on like nothing happened. Like, what's the big deal? Let's just pretend and play nice and talk superficial. And I, I'm thankful that Jesus in the gospel gives you resources to be like, no, 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 we're, we're not doing that. I, I don't want you to hear me say that forgiving a person is like, fine, let's just, let's just whitewash over the thing that you did to me and pretend like it didn't happen. Now, there is an accountability. There is a responsibility. But you gotta be honest with yourself. Maybe sometimes you're just like, I want revenge because I will never get back the resources and the reputation that you stole. And I'd love to get back at you for that. I'd love for you to hurt in the way that you made me hurt. And that's a human instinct. So before I come to the final point of how can you truly forgive if you want to, or even if you don't want to, but you're like, but I do want to honor Jesus and I want to walk the path that I say I want to walk. I actually want to do that, but I don't find the resources within myself to do that. I just want to give you a word of caution. An unforgiving spirit will destroy you. And I know a lot of people, myself included, at certain seasons in my past, think 
if I hold this resentment, if I hold this anger, if I hold out the possibility that I might get back at you, and you know that, then I can control you and I can hurt you back. And you know what I found most of the time? First of all, most of the time, that person is just skipping on with their life, not giving a single thought to me or the thing they did to me. They, they could not care less. And I'm like, oh, I'm hurting you. And they're like, I, they're not even like, no, you're not, because they don't even know. They just don't care. That's part of it. But, but I, will, I will always say what you are doing by lack of forgiveness, I guarantee you are hurting yourself. That anger, that resentment, that desire for revenge that you're holding on to, it might as well be a toxic chemical or cancer in your body. You ever meet someone that's not forgiving and it's just like, you know in the Peanuts cartoon, who's the character that like walks around, there's just the cloud around them? Pigpen. Thank you. And you can see it a mile off, just the attitude, the tone with everything, just like they're coming at you and it's like, Man, this isn't about us. Something, something didn't happen with us. You, you are bringing into every conversation this toxic cloud of just resentment and anger. And I've seen it destroy person after person after person after person. That in love, like we, the church, has warned, this is not hurting the person you want to hurt wrongly. It's hurting you. The body keeps score. You will hurt yourself spiritually by carrying a lack of forgiveness. Guaranteed, you will hurt yourself spiritually. I mean, science tells us, neuroscience tells us, you will hurt yourself psychologically and physiologically. I geeked out a little bit this week and went into some just physiological research. This is just medical doctors who don't believe in Jesus and have no spiritual point to make. And they said, the refusal to forgive someone who's deeply hurt you causes hypertension, high cholesterol, heightened anxiety, stress, and depression, lowered immunity, metabolism, and mood. It ruins your restorative sleep. Uh, it can literally kill you. And I'm not saying, ha you have high blood pressure. That's God pressing on your heart. <laughs> You're depressed right now, but, but it may be. And you may know that in this moment before God, that a contributing factor to my lack of physical health is that I'm pig pen and I'm carrying around your stuff with me because it's not fair to forgive you and I'm looking for an angle, I'm looking for an opportunity to make you feel just a little bit of what you made me feel. And it ruins marriages, it ruins families, it ruins best close friendships, it ruins business environments, it ruins everything. That's my caution. That brings us to the motivation of like, how could I be motivated to forgive when I don't want to forgive? And again, I told you the unfairness thing and the revenge thing. You, you may think of your own reasons. I invite you to backfill. What, what are some impediments? What are some barriers for me that I know I'm not forgiving because of this? And let me just give you two motivations that I believe will, by God's strength at work in you, enable you to be a forgiving person. First of all, you have to treasure the grace of God toward you. And that's the point of reading this story this morning, this parable from Matthew 18. And just to retell it for you quickly and fill in some detail, the idea is the first servant that is pictured has a debt to his master, and the Bible says it's 10,000 talents, okay? A talent is 6,000 days wages. So, so let's just call him servant A owes 
60 million days wages to his master. And again, Jesus is using hyperbole and he's just saying he owes an enormous, basically infinite, unpayable sum of money to his master. That's the point. It's not, don't worry about 60 million. Do I remember 60 million versus what you're about to say the other guy owed him? The point is just like he had a debt that he could never begin to pay. It was an infinite, ridiculous debt. That same servant, A, was owed by servant B, a fellow servant, 100 days wages. That's what a, a denarii is a day's wage. So 100 days wage versus 60 million days wages. And the master has just said, okay, you, just because you pleaded with me. By the way, it's a hilarious plea, right? He's like, if you give me time, I'll repay it. Um, no, you won't. No, you won't. Because you don't have 60 million days. And debt's accrued in that time period. So, so basically, in modern days terms with inflation and all that, you'd, you'd be like, you're not even going to pay the interest on what you owe me. But I forgive you. And he goes to this other guy who owes him 100 days wages and just starts choking him out and throwing him in debtor's prison and say, you will never get out until you pay me every single cent that you owe me. And the master circles back, hearing all the other servants are distraught. How could you do this? And he says, you wicked servant. How can you take this from my hand and turn right around and refuse a much, much lesser debt to another person? Which 100 days wage, I want you to hear this, 100 days wages, that's really substantial. That's a third of a year's wages. And you think about that in terms of your jobs or the jobs that you're seeking to educate, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of money. I'm not, so he's not minimizing this. He's like, that is a ton of money that you are owed. But you had this infinite thing. And how evil are you to receive the grace and the undeserved kindness of your master just to say, just because you pleaded, I forgive you the whole thing. And then to go choke out this other guy and say, every last cent. And, and so to put the lesson, the object lesson of Jesus positively instead of negatively, that's why I said you've got to learn to treasure the grace of God toward you in your own life. And, and family, I'm not saying, okay, there, there are degrees of sin. So the point is not to get in a literal game of like, well, has what God forgiven me? Is that worse than what I'm being asked to forgive someone? The point is just, if God kept track of every single sin, every thought, every, everything that you did that was right, but you did it with the wrong motive, the things that you wanted to do that thankfully you never acted on. And he just presented that to you. I think we'd all be like Paul and be like, yeah, I'm the worst person I know. But if you learn to treasure the grace of God over and over, and I see that in my life when I'm like, I'm a mature believer, God, and I, tried, I keep trying to like be better about this thing and be different about this thing and be repentant about this thing, and I'm just not growing and changing as fast as I would like to. You are so patient and gracious with me. Will you help me be patient and gracious with other people who hurt me? And if you treasure the free gift of Jesus in your own life, and you're like, I, I would not be alive apart from it. I receive no blessing apart from it. Of course, I'm going to let that overflow into other people, even if they're hurting me more than I think I hurt God or other people. So treasure 
the grace of God. But a second motivation is you have to trust the justice of God. Along with treasuring grace, you have to trust his justice. Because I think we have to do something with this, it's unfair, and I want revenge. I want to make this other person hurt. Or, or you get spiritual. I, I just want to see this other person held accountable for the bad thing that they did. And there, there are biblical ways of pursuing that, and that's nuanced, and come talk to me if that's you. What do you do with that desire for revenge? Some of you would say, well, I, I confess it as sin. Yeah, but that's not what the Bible says, interestingly enough. It says, give it to me. God would say, give it to me. Not just confess it as wrong, but a, a text like Romans 12, 19, and this is one of many places scripture says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that might not sound very spiritual to some of you. You're like, wait, wait, shouldn't the Bible say give up your desire for payback because that is a terribly unchristian thing? No, he says give up your desire for payback because God will take care of it. And what I'm saying is just, just like God has your list, he has the list over here. And, and when you're trusting yourself to the justice of God, what you're doing every single time is saying, God, would you liberate me by your grace to pray for that person that's hurt me because you will either redeem them as you redeemed me and forgive their sin and cover it by the same blood that covered my sin and paid for my sin or if that person rejects the free grace that they've been offered, you will act justly and you'll do a much better job than I ever could dream of doing because you're God and you're right and you are just and you are justice. And I'll add this caveat, by the way, it is, it is not vengeance to turn over a wrong to the proper authority. Let's be clear about that. If someone acts criminally towards you, you are not taking vengeance. I mean, you gotta watch your heart, but you're not taking vengeance to say, the authorities need to know about this. Someone needs to handle this. If you were doing something to my kids, and I'll just stop there, but you know what I'm talking about, we would not just be like, well, we're church. Let's just sweep it under the rug and forgive each other because that's what Jesus would, that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus doesn't hide sin. He doesn't hide criminal behavior. But do you know when you're, you're saying, instead of me taking revenge, I give that to God. I turn it over to the proper authorities. That, that's what God calls you to do. And God is one of those proper authorities to just say, I trust your justice and I treasure your grace. I think just closing here with that illustration of, remember, remember Joseph, his brothers despised him because he's like the chosen son with the Technicolor dream coat and he's daddy's favorite and he's getting stuff that we don't get and we're all older and that's not fair and we, we just despise him. So they fake his death, sell him into slavery in Egypt. His life goes well. He climbs through the ranks of Potiphar's house, is over all his house. His wife falsely accuses him. He's in prison then he's going to be killed, then he's not going to be killed, then he's going to be killed, then he's not going to be killed. Finally, he gets out after years and years and years of this, interprets some dreams, is second in the land of Pharaoh. His brothers have to come during a famine to survive, and he recognizes them, and they don't know who he is. And he, let's just say, he pushes some boundaries on vengeance. He messes with them pretty good, if you don't know the story. But in the end, when he chooses 
the grace of God and the justice of God, he's able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's a larger perspective that lets you cope with the fact that you live in a broken world with broken relationships. And there are people who mean you harm, and there are people who are doing evil to you and to our neighbors. But God means it for good in your life. He doesn't mean it to be a thing that you hold on to and say, it's up to me, and it's toxic, and it's cancerous, but i got to do this because you hurt me. But to say, God, I treasure your grace in my life, and I trust your justice. Will you take this? Will you let me walk as Jesus walked?